CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by Minima.Global and Circle. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to Friday's edition of The Hash. We got the chief insights columnist at Coindesk, David Z. Morris, joining me today. And as ever, the technology reporter, Sam Kessler, with us. We got a few stories coming at you and an interview to end up the show. So stick around for that. David, I'm going to throw this story first to you. We got more Doquan alert going on right now. Yeah, you felt that Doquan is getting played out. I disagree. Uh, But this is a relatively small story. We have an update coming via Bloomberg that it seems South Korean prosecutors have intercepted a few chat messages of some sort that imply Doquan is located in Europe somewhere. And arguably, more importantly, the chats also reportedly contain evidence that he was actively encouraging people to manipulate some tokens that he uh, remains involved in, apparently. You know, the second part is, is more important because we have continued to circle around the question of why South Korea exactly is pursuing Doquan. They have criminal securities charges against him but they have not laid out exactly the rationale for that. But there has been a lot of suspicion that it involves market manipulation, and this seems to support that. Yeah, he's he's still on the run. He also, I think we, we may have a tweet that he made yesterday, once again, claiming that he's not on the run, despite the fact that he hasn't disclosed his location. So that's always fun. Sam, you have uh, worked with me on some Doquan and Luna-related stuff. Anything interesting for you as a takeaway here? Yeah. Okay. So let me preface this. Uh, You know this as well as anybody, David. I'm by no means like a Doquan defender or Stan or whatever. Like I am not a lunatic. But I will say one part of this story that I think we need to be cognizant of is that all of the news that we're hearing, um, all of these leaks that are coming out of South Korea, virtually all of them recently, have come from prosecutors themselves. So whether or not Doquan is guilty of what he is being accused of, we should just bear in mind that the information that we're being fed is being fed, it seems, deliberately by prosecutors who have career and political motivations, which might be oriented in the correct direction. But I I just want to put that out there. (laughs) And that's something that I think is missed. And then to the allegations themselves outside of the Europe thing, like, cool, maybe he's in Europe. I don't know. There is the stuff about fraud and whether he manipulated the market. This 
kind of gets to the root. Um, now back to the you know old you know sort of reporting that I've been doing. This gets to the root, I think, of the Terra question, which is how much flexibility should a individual stakeholder, whether that be a company or an individual, have to influence the market of a token when they are trying to get it off the ground? Because I imagine that if this reporting is true, if they do have this audio uh, or, or, or chat log, rather, of Doquan manipulating the price of Luna or UST, rather, to stay at a dollar, he probably will argue like, <laughs> hey, what's so crazy about that? You know, we started by running a business, even though it's going to be decentralized. These are training wheels. You knew there were training wheels. I don't love that, but OK, I, 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 I love that I'll, point. I'll and Will, I'll let you finish. But I have to say, because that's so, <laughs> so, so important, the way Luna operated it, it was built on market manipulation from the very beginning. And so uh, it's not exactly radical. I mean, they were sending loans to market makers. They were propping up the supposed stable coin. That's what the entire game was. So it's not exactly crazy to, to see that he's uh, doing this. But Will, I'll let you go. Can I, oh, can I chime in really quick just to exactly oh, no. that point? I'm sorry. The entire thing, like the, now that I think about it, we know that Do Kwan... Uh, under the guise of LFG, Luna Foundation Guard, which was an organization that stewarded their billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, we know he has told us that he sent that Bitcoin to market makers to help cushion the fall of the UST exactly. token, which is manip like the, I think that's price manipulation. Maybe it, it oriented mm -hmm. in a, a good direction for consumers, but like, what's so crazy here? Maybe they actually found the chat logs of them dispersing that Bitcoin. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, it is kind of weird Darn. when you think of it through that lens. Yeah, I think that's a super fair point. I do want to go back to what David started off with, which is I do find this story getting like a little boring. And the reason is because nothing's happening yet. We just have like this Doquan jurisdiction watch where he's like, oh, is he in Singapore? He's in Dubai. Now he's in Europe. Where is he? The story doesn't seem to be developing past the point that we're sort of following where he's going. I want to see something more important happen. And that would be possibly some justice upheld for people who are you know, dragged into this thing and didn't know what was going on, or at the very least, some sort of prosecution going forward and actually get to the bottom of the matter to see what, what was actually happening. There's so much evidence out there, like you've suggested, Sam, there's a lot of things being leaked from prosecutors, but I would like to see something happen with the story besides just seeing him jump from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Going on to the tweet that we also mentioned, Doquan tweeted yesterday that, quote, all right, I'll throw a meetup conference soon to get over this hiding BS. Cops from all over the world, welcome to attend. Pretty bold. That falls in line with a lot of his past tweets as well. The question is, does he mean it? And noticeably in this tweet, he didn't allow anybody to respond unless they were following him. So there wasn't a lot of interaction with the tweet besides some likes and retweets. I don't know if he means this, and I don't know if this is actually going to happen. We haven't really seen any sort of meetups besides an interview with two different organizations, one that was very in favor of him and one with Laura Shin, which was not as friendly towards him. Uh, some great reporting on that side of things. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen him come out though in person though. So I'd like to see that occur. Maybe less these headlines tracking where he's going all over the globe. I don't know. I want to see a new development. Dave, I'll throw it over to you though. So, yeah. You know, those two things are related, right? So when you see him moving around the world, he's not just trying to kind of like evade the attention of cops. We talked yesterday about OneCoin and Ruja Ignatova. And what we saw there and what I think could definitely be in play here is he's jurisdiction shopping and he's specifically looking for a state sponsor who's actually going to 
help him avoid the, the search. And we know that at least one of those is in Eastern Europe. We've seen evidence that Bulgarian uh, leadership, or at least elements within Bulgarian state leadership, were providing assistance to Ruzhegnatova as she fled Interpol. So Europe is, is big. He could be in Bulgaria. Who knows? Anything's possible. Although it is weird that he left Dubai, which is another place that we know leadership is willing to shield people from prosecution in global financial frauds. So it's not just like tracking his movements out of curiosity. There's, there is an added element there. We're talking about Aptos, yeah. which had its launch in October to some fanfare and then some disappointment when the token launch went a little sideways. And now there's some pushback on the tokenomics of the project. For those who are interested, tokenomics generally refers to how the tokens are distributed from a new project that is launching. Bitcoin famously launched with a fair launch where anyone could mine if they knew about it from the very beginning. Of course, not a lot of people were paying attention to this in 2009, so not a lot of people participated. But at the very least, for sake of argument, you could say it was a fair launch. Ever since then, a lot of people have been working on how to launch a coin fairly. How do we engineer the token supply and the distribution of that token to make it as fair for everyone as possible? And Aptos, which is the new kid on the block coming to a bear market, has gotten some pushback. Aptos is a move-based chain, supposed to be pretty robust, supposed to be pretty scalable. And it comes from the people who are formerly working on Meta's blockchain, DM. They moved over to this free project, Aptos. And they've allocated quite a bit of tokens towards themselves. The comparison here, of course, is Ethereum. Ethereum, the most important chain besides Bitcoin, and some people might even say it's flipped at this point. And the argument is that if the Ethereum co-founders, they allocated 10% to the foundation, 10% to themselves, and then the rest went into an auction and a lottery and mining rewards. Aptos didn't do that. They distributed about 50% of rewards to themselves. Uh, Sam, I'm going to throw the story over to you, though, to get a little bit more granular with the details. Definitely an interesting story for blockchain nerds out there who are considerate of the tokenomics. For me, the interesting thing here is I know all of us who are talking on the show today are pretty big consumers of crypto Twitter. One thing that I've noticed about Aptos compared to other chains, and this is not based on data, this is just based on what I have observed, people do not give Aptos the same benefit of the doubt as they do other chains. And also Aptos does not, in my reading, seem to have the sort of community rallying behind it that other highly criticized ecosystems have had, e.g., Terra, even when Hera was getting, you know, bashed for being a rigged system, a broken system, what have you, it had its fans. Aptos hasn't had that. And so I think the reason why this story is more interesting than some of these other, you know, weird fair launch, token launch stories is that in the absence of this community behind it, all we're really left with in terms of who would be fans of something like this are the developers, um, and more, more to the point, the investors who ended up getting these funds. And that, that kind of has left me with a question, which is, if the product of this, or if the profit of this is, uh, at least so far, only going to investors, if the optics are only for investors, what's the point? What is their go-to-market strategy? Who are they trying to persuade to do anything? I, I, it just seems to me like a, a PR nightmare. I don't understand how they're supposed to move forward with something yeah, like this. Yeah, I have to get on that because it's such an important point. And to make really clear, the reason that they, I would argue, the reason that they don't have the community, that they don't have the benefit of the doubt is the legacy of where this technology comes from. It came out of Facebook's Libra, one of the most misguided projects 
in recent memory, only recently supplanted by Metaverse, Facebook's version of the Metaverse. They don't deserve the benefit of the doubt because the entire play is driven by money. They had this thing. They were like, oh, DM failed. I guess we can spin it off on the reputation that we were once affiliated with Facebook and we can make some money. And you have to look at that huge initial allocation in light of it's about making money. Although, frankly, it seems like that's totally crashing and burning because a 1 billion market cap for a new layer one, even in a bear market for crypto in 2022 is pathetic. I mean, it's an embarrassment and and people have seen that this is not a good play. The other really important point that this brings up is people are talking about crypto regulation. This is low hanging fruit. We need accounting rules that prevent companies from counting assets that they themselves have created against their balance sheets. We saw it with Celsius. We discussed it yesterday with SBF and FTX and Alameda. This continues to be a serious point of weakness because I don't, I'm not intimately familiar, but I assume that there is both a, an Aptos token and some kind of private organization that actually has equity investors. And having those two things happening at the same time, it just does not work. It does not make sense. It leaves all kinds of avenues for manipulation. It's bad. This is a law that needs to go into place. You should not be able to have your own token on your balance sheet, period. Yeah, I'm going to actually riff on both the points you just made. Start with the first one, the accounting rules. That was some huge information coming from the Coindesk team talking about how FTX is using its own native token to balance its sheet. It's basically equity in itself, but it's a token, right? And that token trades on secondary markets. There's a lot of problems with it. They owned a lot of their own float for the token. There's a ton of problems with the fact that if that is the case, and that's what's out there, and to my knowledge, FTX and Alameda has not distanced itself from the reporting at all. That really is a bombshell article on account of the equity that they have and account of the moves that they made over the summer. The fact that they were uh, pitching themselves as like the savior of decentralized finance, the savior of all these teams out there. And yet on the back end, a lot of the money didn't quite make sense. And to your point about regulations and laws, I think this is also on the lenders, right? If someone's going to give you money and you're lending against a floating token like that, and that's really on the lenders for not understanding what's happening. And we've seen that a lot, especially in the spring, where a lot of these firms were lending to Three Rs Capital and other firms based on multiple parts of collateral that a lot of people had their hands on. Uh, so yes, David, I think, think you are totally right there. We need some sort of like accounting rules or regulations that everyone agrees by. They're not going to double count their own native token. On to the second point about like launching L1 during a bear market. Really tough to do that. And I think you're spot on. Like, no one really wants to give money to the Facebook team. I'm sorry. They're, they're not exactly like beloved within the crypto community. When this was first launched, if you remember, it's called WorldCoin for a little bit. And there was a lot of anger and frustration that Facebook was moving into this arena. And that spilled out all over Capitol Hill. We saw Mark Zuckerberg testify. A lot of frustration there, a lot of frustration in the crypto community that Facebook was coming in. And now they've launched their own project. They might be moving away from Facebook and doing their own thing. But at the same time, they're using the same technology. It's the same people. And now we have this question about the allocation of the initial tokens. And it just smells bad. The other piece of this whole Aptos move Facebook thing is that Aptos is not the only Facebook originated company using Facebook's move language to launch a new L1 right now. There's another company um, or another chain called Sui that's that's doing the same thing. And one interesting thing to to note here, and I want to write about this, is that Aptos is kind of the, at least in the, the public view, 
or sentiment, it seems to be kind of like the, the, the more VC chain, or at least like the chain that was run by, you know, the product managers and all of that from Facebook. Whereas SWE is from the community, at least what developers tell me, it's viewed as more like the dev chain, like developers of Libra, DM, of the move language are the ones who are working on that. So they both have different kind of go-to-market strategies. SWE seems to be taking a little bit more of a bottom-up approach, but I've heard rumors that they're, they've already raised a ton of money, not quite as much, but I've heard rumors that they might have raised even more. Like that's going to be a really interesting battle. Developers do like this move language for various different reasons that are not for this show. They're going to duke it out for a while. One of them might win. They both might lose, but whether or not either don't have goodwill. I, I, I don't, I don't know. So here's a big question. What's the most important thing about crypto? It's not transactions per second. It's not convenience. And it's not even smart contracts. It's decentralization to achieve censorship resistance so we can all be free. Minima is a new layer one blockchain designed to run in full on a smartphone so that anyone can participate in building Minima's decentralized network as an equal. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning Minima every day until mainnet launch. Get started at Minima.global. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. All right, so now for our next story, we're going to talk briefly about this really weird thing that happened last night where this token gala associated with a gaming ecosystem that uses crypto, the token gala crashed all of a sudden. And the reason why it crashed is because on Binance Smart Chain or BNB Chain, it's confusing, Binance's blockchain, one of the pools containing gala suddenly was injected with tons of new tokens that seem to be printed out of new uh, out of thin air, like $2 billion worth of these tokens, which is not okay. So for a little bit, it looked like a rug pull. It looked like somebody printed out all these new tokens using um, and, and then just pumped them into the pool, taking out everything else on the other side of the, the pair of the pool. So meaning they were able to pump in these P Gala bridged Gala tokens, take out all of the BNB tokens, and then just like run away. But in reality, what we're hearing is that the folks who set up the bridge that was supposed to bring Gala from one blockchain, from Ethereum to the Binance chain, that bridge provider were the ones who themselves printed those 2 billion tokens because they noticed that there was a problem with their tokens on Binance's chain. There was a problem with their bridge. So all of the quote unquote P Gala wrapped tokens on Binance were screwed up. So they printed all these new tokens. They drained the pool. Now they have all of these BNB tokens themselves that they say they're going to redeploy into new pools that are fresh, have a new version of Gala. They say they took a snapshot of what the pools used to look like, and they're going to give users their balances. But it's a, a screwed up story because 
the price of Gala shot down because people didn't realize what was going on. Most people aren't on crypto Twitter. Most people, I mean, these are, it's also a gaming thing. Like, I don't know how many people are, you know, aware of what's going on here. So people started selling these tokens. They're saying, hey, stop using these old tokens. Um, people are still doing it. They're losing money because there's still a market for these tokens while people are confused. It's also unclear how or why we should trust this bridge provider to inject this capital that they printed into these new chains. Right now, they call it a white hat attack on themselves. It's, it's very confusing. It's not good practice. It, it, it's even confusing to me as a journalist. I'm curious to hear your take. Like, What did they do wrong and what does this show us? Will? Yeah, I think it shows you how dangerous and tough it is to build decentralized finance applications. When you start branching out into bridging, start branching out to games, you start bridging out to different networks, L1s, L2s, it just gets even more complicated. And that's where you have problems with the finances, right? Where the price can move around. All these things exist on secondary markets where they're just, they can move at the whim of any notion, right? It could be Twitter, it could be Reddit, it could be someone just looking at the information itself and performing an arbitrage trade. And that can hurt everyone else who's using the system. When it comes to bridging, that's been very tough for a lot of any ecosystem, just to be honest, Ethereum all the way down the stack, we're seeing problems with bridging where people don't quite know how to get these bridges to work or function correctly. And that can lead to a lot of problems, especially in this instance where you have two tokens trading on this bridge, supposed to swap fairly against a market price and one slips for whatever reason. Here in this case, it looks like the bridging team was trying to actually protect the network and they ended up hurting the network and hurting a lot of investors out there. I think that tells you how early it is for bridging technology. I think it also should give a little pause to some of the builders out there and maybe don't test and prod for some of these projects because you are losing people a lot of money. I don't know if you're going to listen to that because that's never been the case for any DeFi developer. But bridges seem to be a little more touchy than most people are willing to one could argue, David, over to you. One could argue that all of crypto is, is testing in prod, I, I think. <laughs> Ra um, radical radical anyway. proposals here from Will. Controversial hot takes. <laughs> don't test in production. I don't have uh, a whole lot to add to Will, except that this is like entry number 235 of Bridges Are a Problem. The fact, to emphasize what Sam says, right? And Sam, correct me if I'm misreading, but you're saying it is not the uh, administrator of the token itself who was responsible for this. It was the bridge provider, that is the uh, designer of the architecture that connected two different systems, who unilaterally, it sounds like, yes. made this decision. It drives home the point that the bridge has basically an undue amount of power in a lot of these situations, whether it's the power to fail or the power to intervene. A bridge is not that far from just being a whole other layer one that like connects these different systems and you can do whatever you want. If you're in control of that bridge, there's not an answer. There's not like a counter argument. It's just that like this technology seems to have some serious problems. And, you know, if somebody really wanted to make a revolutionary change while we're here sitting in this bear market, let's figure out an alternative or, you know, lay down some some real best practices about how we should move away from this basic architecture, which just is the source of, I think, basically the vast majority of the, the hacks and failures that we see. I think you nailed it there. This is confusing stuff. And yeah, probably people shouldn't test and prod, but they're going to do it anyways. So we'll just let that mm -hmm. idea float out the window because no one's going to listen to it anyways. Let's move on to the next story. We actually got an interview for everyone. We're joined now by Idris Sandu. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You are the founder of Spatial Labs and Technologist. Really curious to get a little information about the project you're building on, which is the intersection of clothing, design, cryptocurrency, 
and blockchain. But welcome to the show. Peace, peace. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And what I know about your product is that you're, you're primarily, or at least the, the first thing you're selling people is streetwear, fashion, but it's got a chip embedded that has some blockchain features. So I just want to know about this chip and, and tell us about how you get real fashion onto the blockchain or what the interaction is there. For sure, for sure. What we've realized generally at Spatial Labs is that majority of the conversations surrounding Web3 and the metaverse are happening from a digital interaction standpoint. So whether it's you holding a token and getting some form of digital asset, majority of the conversations are starting within sort of this digitalia space. What we're actually aiming to do is giving more entry points for people that know nothing about the metaverse, know nothing about crypto, know nothing about blockchain to get involved while lessening sort of the education barrier, right? So by bridging the worlds of physical products through fashion, people can actually use our chip technology and using our embedded NFC algorithms, you can actually tap on the product, mint the actual digital twin that's attached with that product and receive a couple of different benefits. Now, this is great, right? Because it doesn't have to change consumer behavior, right? People don't have to go buy underlying token first from some third-party app and then buy an NFT. Instead, they can still go to the store as they normally do, buy any physical item. But what changes is the consumer journey of what happens when you buy that product, right? When you buy that product, you can now activate it, mint it, and receive specific benefits curated by the brand. One of the really interesting things, Idris, about the, the company seems to be your focus on supply chain, ethical manufacturing, the ability to track from origin to store to your feet or your, your torso, where this thing came from. I wonder whether you've seen appetite from big brands, from fast fashion brands. Like, it, it seems like it's going to be a hard push to get this really out into the mainstream, as important as it is. But a lot of people do have an appetite to consume ethically. So what is the roadmap to getting these sorts of chips and this sort of awareness out to the mainstream beyond just like high fashion applications? That's a very great question, right? At scale, we see our technology powering millions and millions of chips. And the reason why this is important now more than ever is within ethical sort of fashion practices and, and, and sneaker design practices, um, transparency hasn't really been one that you know, we've really focused on, right? So a lot of companies have been able to issue certain statements around certain products and sustainability scores that are actually not true. And we've also seen mm. sort of the ethics and practices that actually making these shoes. So a brand can release a statement, no way for the consumer that's actually actively participating in those sales to actually know if those metrics are true. The ability to not only have a decentralized way to track that, but also a distributed system of tracking that as well, right? Because our app is extremely small, extremely efficient. We've built this on the Polygon network. You can get information into a product in five seconds or less. The analogy that I like to bring or use to describe what we're doing is it's the Shazam of physical products. Prior to Shazam, if you went into a store and you heard a song that you like, you had to use three forms of queries to get what you wanted, segmentation or fragmentation. Those are the ways that we query and search for information on the internet today. But Shazam allowed you to take a slice of an audio clip, analyze it, and get the exact information that is accurate around that particular track, as well as information you probably didn't know, like the songwriter, right? And other information. We're doing that for physical products now. No longer do you have to like, guess what item you have and what color it is and where it was made and trust Google, right? The manufacturer can actually provide fact check information into what materials it's made of, the royalties, the designers. And because of the way that our ecosystem works on the Polygon network, brands can tag individual designers and assign royalties to those physical products. Now that's a game changer, right? Because 
you know, with NFTs, they introduced this new mechanic of royalties, but it's kind of only been for digital products. What could it mean for a brand to be able to capture post-secondary sales of a physical item? So to summarize the question you asked, although today we are launching products like this that have our link, you know, our chip technology into it, and it seems like more of a higher end fashion, our approach is very similar to like Tesla, right? Where we might have high demand, low scale or low supply, mid demand, mid supply. And our goal is to have high demand, high supply at an affordable cost for brands that even fit out of the realm of luxury. Wanted to get your thoughts on the intersection of cryptocurrency and design right now. From your purview, do you see a lot of people jumping into this bandwagon or is it really just like the beginner? You guys are like the pioneers of this space. Well, I think pioneers are incredibly important, um, but the sense of originality that kind of plagues our, our space today is everyone wants to be the first to say they did something rather than ones that do it right. And I think because of our attention to detail, our extreme you know, design background, when I was a kid, I was inspired by Steve Jobs and the work that Jonathan Ive did and even studying like Eames and Tata Trivana and Zahid. I've always wanted to not only democratize, but also distribute systems, right? And today we kind of use those words interchangeably. And so, I mean, for us, it's not about doing it first, which yes, we are rightful pioneers in this space, but our goal is to do it right. And I think we're establishing a standard for brands to pretty much bring the products that they already own or will launch in the future to be metaverse ready or Web3 ready. I think that's our goal, right? Our goal is to be pretty much the same way Fisher Price would launch toys in the store and it would say batteries included. You don't have to buy batteries after that. That's our goal. Our goal is how can you buy a physical product and it's metaverse ready? You don't have to go buy a digital equivalent in two and a half years when the brand finally figures out that they want to be on the metaverse. It's like if brands could in ways use chip technologies like this to power their brands today, the consumer can still just buy this and just leave it on the shelf or wear it. And when they're ready to port this item over into the metaverse or Web3, they can. And what does porting look like in our ecosystem, right? Um, hey, we kind of have platforms like Decentraland and Sandbox that allow you to buy pretty much 3D files or 3D assets and then use them in these interoperable experiences. But if I have this physical shoe, what could it look like for me to import this physical item into Decentraland or the Sandbox without having to make an additional purchase? It's not just decentralizing access, but it's providing a distributed system for everyone to get involved with the conversation. So at the heart, we're really solving three issues that I kind of wanted to touch on. One of those issues is currently brands have the lack of tools to fight against counterfeiting and inauthentic products. Our technology allows for that in a very seamless, easy distributed way. Most luxury brands today, if you were to take an item that you bought outside of their store back to them and say, hey, is this item real? They won't even touch the product because they're not even convictional in their ability to rely on human eye judgment to, to do that. Now, with our technology, you just tap on it in five seconds or less, you get the authentic meta ID of that particular item. And by the way, the inauthentic sort of counterfeiting market globally is $4.1 trillion of fake goods. So the second issue that we're solving in terms of real world utility is there's a lack of post-secondary sales infrastructure for brands to capture post-secondary sales. So most brands only capture purchases once, right? When it's directly sold on their website. Our technology allows the royalty mechanics to be built directly during the supply chain production of the item. So a brand can say, hey, we're charging $100 for our product, but there's a 2% royalty every single time it's, it's, it's sold somewhere else. Now, this helps small and mid-scale level brands as they continue to maintain and dominate their relevance, also capture some of those sales. And the third issue we're really solving is that there's a lack of incentives for consumers to hold on to products sold by brands post-sale due to limited utility. 
So literally, the only reason why someone would hold on to an item over time is scarcity. That's it. But if a brand can now mm-hmm. say, there's a new podcast, there's a new interview, there's a new song we've partnered with Dua Lipa to release via our products, there's an incentive for you to hold on to that product in the same way that people are incentivized to hold on to crypto because it accumulates over time. Idris Sandu, founder of Spatial Labs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Peace. Cool. Well, that's a wrap for us. David Z. Morris and Sam Kessler joining me today. Thanks, guys. That's the Friday's edition Thanks, of Ash. Everybody. If you enjoyed it, you might like the yeah. podcast version a little bit more. To check us, us out on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, the Coindesk Podcast Network. From all of us at Coindesk, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 